Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and this is our podcast about earning a living independently doing something you love. And today, you know our guest. He's a former Fizzle team member. He's the chief operating officer at ConvertKit. And he's just one of my favorite people to talk to about the topic today. And that is the golden age of creators. Barrett, thanks so much for being on. Hey, Corbett. Glad to have you back. It's been a little while, not too long, but it's been a while. Last year, we had you on a couple of times. We're getting better at this. We're getting more frequent with my returns home. I hope that you know that I really appreciate you spending time with us because you're a busy man. I know that you are over there in your home office, locked away, doing Zoom all day long, mostly having management calls for ConvertKit and uh, working with your team. There's a lot to do over there because you've got, what do you guys have, like 60 employees now? Yeah, 60 people now, yeah. You're a busy person and we appreciate you being here. So we won't waste your time or anybody else's today. We're going to get into a really juicy topic. And this is something that I think you and I see each other writing about a little bit, commenting on, on Twitter and so on. And that is just that it feels like all of a sudden, it's almost like that overnight success story. You know, you hear about a person being an overnight success, but you look and see that they've been toiling away for 15 years. Now, it's almost as if we're seeing the overnight success of the creator or of the creator economy. And everywhere you look, there's new software, new platforms, new VCs popping up who are obsessed with the creator economy. So I wanted to have you on because you think about this every day for work and you think about it every day just because it's in your blood, right? Right. What's been bringing this up for you lately? Like give us inside the mind of somebody who's operating one of these platforms that's built for creators and who's been doing so for several years. And you've seen things change dramatically in just that little bit of time. Well, it's fascinating because, so you and I started working together almost eight years ago now, between seven and eight years ago. And creator wasn't a thing at the time, number one. Number two, earning a living online was like this taboo, weird thing that no one really got. You know, it was like so much of fizzle at the time was kind of like a little bit trying to prove that this is actually a better way to earn a living. This is a more interesting, fulfilling way to both live your life and earn income. And I think people, a lot of people in the mainstream, VCs, our parents, whoever, were like, this is a scam. Like, it doesn't work like this. And to be fair, some of it was a scam. Yes. Right? Making money online, the old internet marketing stuff. A lot of that was, we spent so much time just defending that this could be legit because there was so much sleaze out there. Right. That is totally true. And we did a lot of that was like fighting back against that. That's not the way, you know, and it was, I don't know, four years ago, I guess we started working on a project at ConvertKit. I've been here almost five years now. And the title of the book was I am a blogger. And the whole goal of the project, we did the series of documentaries. And then the the book was, let's prove that this is a legit way to earn a living. Like, let's go find the people that are doing incredible work, serving an audience really well and earning healthy income from it. And so we found like these, I don't know how many it was, 12 people and did these little 10 minute documentaries and made this beautiful book. And that was like our attempt to prove, no, this is legit. Like I'm tired of y'all all talking about this being some weird thing. And then you fast forward four years and now it's like, you would think venture capitalists invented creators the way that they're talking about it. Yes. 
VCs and especially like the Gen Z like type VCs, people that are hot off the presses. They act like it was invented yesterday. Yes. And it's like, no, no, TikTok creators were invented yesterday. But there are people in the Fizzle community who have been running businesses like this for over a decade. Like this is not new. And so one thing I realized was ConvertKit's not funded by anyone. That's on purpose. You know, we don't have like a bunch of investors whose financial incentives are to try and make us seem like the hot thing. So all of a sudden we're in a little bit of a hotter market. Like we got to get more serious about being classically competitive in that way, because it is a rising tide floats all boats, but it's also getting more saturated in terms of the number of tools that creators can choose from to do the same job. And it made me realize that we had like this assumed reality that of course this is the next thing. And in having that assumed reality, we didn't keep tooting the horn and telling the story. Like we weren't out there saying the golden age of creators is here, like we're talking about right now. And it made me want to kind of reclaim that. Like, no, 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 this is our narrative. This is Fizzle's narrative. We have been in this before y'all even thought about creators. In fact, half you VCs didn't want to invest in, in ConvertKit six years ago when Nathan asked because he thought it wasn't big enough. Like the market wasn't big enough. And now they can't spend money fast enough to invest in the market of creators. And so I started thinking about like, all right, how did we get here and how can we properly frame the true evolution of how we arrived here and that it wasn't TikTok and OnlyFans and these new companies that drove it all or Substack or whoever. It's actually been a long time coming. I'm curious real quick and because we're probably not going to talk too much about VC stuff. And I really want to focus on what this all means for the creator. But at the same time, because of all this interest, because there's so much being invested here, VC dollars, when they enter your domain, it really distorts the economy there, right? As an owner of a company, as an operator of one of these companies that's competing now with other companies that are well-funded, and there are these dollars out there looking around for homes, it has to change things dramatically. And the economics just that used to make sense. And you were just happily going along, like, you know, the pie is growing, you're growing your business. And now all of a sudden there's all these distortions happening. It, it's got to be, it's got to be a little unsettling, disconcerting, scary, frustrating. How are you seeing all of this? It definitely is. I mean, it's part of my motivation to be more vocal and like try and set some of the record straight on where we came from. You know, maybe, maybe we won't win in the end. But at a minimum, I want people to know the role that we played along the way that like this partially exists because we made it exist. And some of that is like a pride and respect thing. Like you want to be known for helping create the movement. But some of it is also like I want us to be a core part of this movement for a long time to come. Both Fizzle and ConvertKit, like both those things are personal to me. And so the practical ways it shows up, like just for people who maybe don't, you know, most of the listeners don't run startups with a bunch of people. Let's say, you know, we have a couple million dollars we're going to spend on ads today. Like we do a little over $25 million a year in revenue now. And that's like a healthy amount of money to spend on advertising, especially for a business like ours. And maybe we're willing to spend, as an example, $50 to get someone to sign up for an account today. And maybe it's much more than that, but just as an example, maybe we're willing to spend 50. Well, when a competitor goes and raises $200 million or $400 million just to gain market share, you know, in economic terms, they might be willing to spend $500 to gain a customer today simply because money's not the limitation. Customers is. And for them, money there's more of as long as they hit growth targets. For us, 
we operate on profit. Like we need real revenue to come in the door. They just need to prove that there's enough of a growth of users that someday later there will be revenue. And so in that scenario, they're willing to spend way more money to get the same person to watch their ad as an example. And we just can't compete with that. On the flip side, the same company might be willing to completely break the prevailing business model and say, everyone can use our tool for free. And sometime we'll figure out how to make it paid. But they might be now giving away a thing that we charge for, for free, which is going to change at some point. But no one signing up for it today cares because it's free, right? Reality, it's almost as if they are willing to put you out of business by spending a bunch of money giving something away for free. And then once you're gone, they'll start charging for it or they'll have the masses or whatever. So That's exactly right. I cannot imagine being in that space. And just so if, if people aren't familiar... The business that you run with Nathan Barry, ConvertKit, is what, seven years old or something at this point? Eight years as of the beginning of this year, yeah. Eight years. And ConvertKit started, like a lot of these businesses did in that era, as Nathan writing a blog post saying, I want to challenge myself to build some software that can earn, you know, $500 a month or or whatever, $5,000 a month. And from those humble beginnings, it's grown into this amazing thing with 60 people. But now, just fast forward, not that long, a blink of an eye in, in most people's careers, and suddenly you literally have competitors with hundreds of millions of dollars in funding, competitors like Substack, competitors like Clubhouse, which just worth a billion dollars now. And you know they may not exactly be competing in your space, but they might. Twitter just bought Review, which is a Substack competitor that allows you to send paid newsletters. So everyone has their eye on what's going on here. Now, let's shift gears from what it means as a software company to what it means as a creator, because this is really exciting. And I'm curious, are you feeling like this is better for creators now? How does this change Like, if you were getting started today versus if you were getting started a while ago? Well, it gives all the leverage to creators. And so like one of the ways I think about this is leverage that you have, but also where can you grow your audience? What's the best way for you to create an asset for yourself over time? So on the leverage end, an example I'll give there is, is people may have heard of a guy named Joe Budden. Joe Budden is a, a hip hop artist. He retired from hip hop because he got tired of record labels basically taking advantage of artists. And he's like, I don't need this. I'm big enough. I have enough money. I can go do whatever I want. And he started a podcast. And Spotify has gotten into podcasts and it's gotten more popular that they're like building a walled garden around their podcast network now, but they've been at it for a long time, actually testing the concept. And Joe Budden was one of the earliest people they did a contract with to see if owning rights to a show and distribution for it would be profitable for them. So Joe was one of the key reasons that they proved that model. And they ended up giving massive deals to a couple of podcasters this year. You know, they've got like a Michelle Obama podcast now. And um, I'm going to forget the name of like the guy everyone listens to that's controversial. Joe Rogan got a massive deal. And then they turned around and they were offering Joe Budden like pennies on the dollar for what they gave Joe Rogan. Yeah, Joe Rogan, for people that aren't familiar, has one of the largest audiences on the planet, which is amazing. But Spotify paid him a contract of 100 million dollars 
to move his podcast. To make a podcast. This is where we're at right now. Yes, exactly. Okay, Joe's like, fuck y'all. I don't need you either. And he's angry, number one, because he feels like as a black man, he's getting taken advantage of, that he was the one that paved the path for them. They go and pay this white guy, Joe Rogan, all this money, and then they turn around and offer him almost nothing. And so he's like, fuck y'all. I'm going to go find my own thing. And so he signs up with Patreon. He's now going to be the head of creator equity at Patreon, run his podcast through the Patreon network and get paid directly by his fans for their normal fee. And the reason he can do all of that, he's probably getting paid to to lead uh, creator equity there and maybe even as ownership. He had leverage because he's got the audience. The audience, they don't care whether it's at Spotify or Patreon. They're going to follow Joe wherever Joe goes. So that's the first thing is if you can build an audience then you have leverage over all of the companies. And that's true of whether you're it's an email tool or a way to sell your products or a way to build community. So you're in the driver's seat. This is something that's been coming up so much lately. And, and I think people need to just take a moment and ponder the flip that has happened in 10 or 15 years where it used to be the platform's the gatekeepers who were there and people had to beg them for the opportunity to reach their audience. And now it's the platforms begging the creators to reach their audience. It's totally flipped. Not to say that there aren't platforms with tremendous audiences still like Netflix and so on, but for Joe Budden, for Joe Rogan. And you know, you could make a case that Joe Rogan, he made a hundred million dollars. It's amazing. You could make a case that he could probably make that or more doing Patreon like paid podcast model like Joe's doing. I think relying on advertising, that's a whole rat hole we don't have to go down. But regardless, we're kind of in this weird golden age where they're willing to pay him a ridiculous amount of money, but that's because his audience is worth reaching. It's a massive audience. Yeah, and it cuts across a lot of different demographics. They're very active and huge supporters of him. So, you know, how does that apply, right? Like, you don't have a billion listeners podcast today if you're listening to this. Or if you do, hi. And there's a couple of things you need to think about. One is how do you grow your audience most effectively? And a second is how do you make sure you own the relationship to that audience? Because one of the things when market forces, like we talked about earlier, get distorted is you can get tricked into becoming the product. Like when you're not paying for something, it means you are the product. And often that times that means that you're going to get potentially screwed out of the relationship to your audience later. So an example of this, Facebook is probably the most prominent, and this is very timely for you, right? You just wrote about what's wrong with social media. When you started Fizzle and when I was on the team, people were building entire businesses on the backs of Facebook in a couple of ways. They were running communities there, starting to run ads there. And what you find is when there's an ad supported platform like Facebook, where they start ratcheting up what you have to pay to reach your audience is they're going to squeeze every bit of margin that they can. Margin is just the difference between your expenses and what you bring in from revenue. And so that results in what you get paid. They're going to squeeze you as much as they can to take away your margins. And that's what they did. It ended up costing more and more and more money to reach all of the people who already said they wanted to hear from you. And anytime you see a free platform where you can build an audience, it is highly likely that that is one way they're going to try and gain revenue for their business over time. Facebook is using you when you go on their platform. You might think I'm using Facebook because there are other people there and I want to reach those people, but you better bet that Facebook is using you because if you're spending time on that platform, if you're producing content on that platform, it means you're creating something that is a magnet for other people. 
You know, and I, I just wrote about this this week and I just left Facebook entirely, including all of Facebook's products because I have such a problem with them as a business, but also because I didn't see a whole lot of return from using it. I was just commenting that when we spend time on any platform, it's ostensibly because we want to interact with other people who are already there. But by being there ourselves, we end up attracting others who might want to interact with us. And so we effectively become unwitting marketing tools for those platforms themselves by spending time there. And so by leaving Facebook, I am pulling myself away from being a magnet for other people who might want to spend time there. That's a difficult thing to break when Facebook has 2.5 billion people spending time on it every day, but it's something to keep in mind. So as a creator, if you're going to spend time on a platform to choose to do that, you need to be pulling people from that platform and plugging them into other more direct ways of reaching them. You brought up a word earlier when you were talking about Spotify, and that is walled garden. The difference between email, which is a protocol, and it's a direct connection between you and your audience, that's on the open internet. Facebook or Spotify, those are walled gardens, meaning in order to access the content on there, you have to be a member and you have to access that content through their platform. So there's a big difference between the two of those. And I hope, I think that we're going to see the pendulum shift back towards the open internet from the walled garden approach, because we've seen what happens when a company like Facebook gets so much power. But I want to keep talking about this because I want people to know that, not just as a creator because it's important for you as an audience, but because I think it's important for society, for the internet to remain open. Yes. And that is part of the long narrative here that really matters to me. But I'll give another example here because people might walk away from that and be like, well, how do I know if I'm in a walled garden? And here's the simplest way to know. If your thing you're pointing to is company.com slash your name, so like facebook.com slash Corbett Barr, you're marketing for them. You might be doing some good for you, but you're marketing for them. If it's CorbettBar.com slash whatever, you're marketing for you. And you might be using a piece of software to power that, but that's your name, your equity, your brand, your relationship to the audience. So a concrete example of that would be Shopify and Etsy. Now, Shopify starting to blur the line, so I won't get too much into that. But Etsy, it's Etsy.com slash Corbett Barr. And for someone to find you on there, they have to go to the Etsy site, search for you, find your brand, and then buy from you there. And Etsy's going to take a cut of that, right? Shopify, on the other hand, is a thing that you can power your website with, that you own the contacts, you own the fulfillment system, you own all of that. They can help with it, but it is corbettbar.com slash microphone if you're selling microphones or something like that. And you can take that business to any other platform at any point. Shopify is just a tool you pay for along the way. And so a lot of times what people get tricked into is with a tool like a Shopify or a ConvertKit where you pay monthly, it's like, yeah, but there's a free version over here. It's like, yeah, but you know what you are in that system? You're the product and you're in a walled garden. You're the product and that's because the thing that you're offering to that company is much more valuable than the monthly price you would be paying to another company. And you always have to keep that in mind. Now, I can't fault someone for going on Etsy because Etsy has an audience and maybe you can plug into that audience. But as a creator, you always have to keep what we're talking about right now top of mind because if you want to build a sustainable business and if you want that leverage that Barrett was talking about earlier 
That leverage comes from owning the relationship with the audience and not giving it up or not allowing Facebook or someone else to come between you and your audience because they can and will change the rules of the game to make it more beneficial for them along the way. And we see this all the time. Amazon built a lot of their business on the backs of affiliates, people who are referring other people to buy products on Amazon in exchange for a commission. And then overnight, they literally cut the rates in half or worse. And we saw friends of ours like Matt Giovanisi, who's been on the show a number of times, see his revenue cut in half overnight with zero warning. And it's brutal, you know, because you have no say in that. Unless you have such deep pockets that you can take someone to court over that and you're still probably going to lose, there's just no recourse. You got to go figure out what's next. And this isn't like a the world is going to end if you build your business this way. It's just saying if you want to build for the long term and you want to future proof your business, you, there's a lot of interest that you should have in owning that relationship. What does that mean? It means you need a way to get in touch with people outside of the platform that you're building your audience on. And so there's really like three ways, if you think about it, I guess, you can have their mailing address, which is highly ineffective, uh, but it is one way. You can have their email address, which is why email systems have continued to stand the test of time. You can have their phone number and you can use SMS as a marketing channel. Outside of that, unless you have a proprietary community, like Fizzle kind of owns your relationship within the community. Obviously you have the email addresses of everyone. You kind of have like that built into the community, but if they don't keep logging in, you also don't have that there. And so really you want a way to proactively be able to foster the relationship with your audience. Taking care of employees has never been more important. For years, Gusto has been helping more than 100,000 small business owners run payroll, offer benefits, onboard new employees, and more. They call it the people platform. And it doesn't just look nice, it works. Your payroll taxes are filed, deductions are calculated, and your team gets paid. You can even offer health insurance and 401ks. Get three months free after your first payroll when you go to gusto.com slash fizzle. That's gusto.com slash fizzle. Let me just point out a few others just from a internet sort of technical standpoint. So you mentioned three ways that you can have a direct connection with your audience that are push, meaning I am able to push a message to someone in my audience through SMS, through email, through physical mail. Those are all ways I can deliver messages. Those are highly coveted and very effective. Now, second best to that, I would say, is having a connection to your audience where they are in the driver's seat in terms of the connection, but it's a direct connection to internet property that you own. And there are a few different ways to do that. And they're all built on protocols, not platforms. Protocols being the internet itself, the web. If someone has your web address, they can connect to you. There's no one in between. It's them and you. And if you want to change your website, you can do that. You own the rules there. Another example would be RSS. That's a way for them to connect to information from you. And then another one would be podcasting as well, because podcasting is based on similar technology to an RSS feed. So those are all examples of the open internet. And I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about this going forward, partly because people are so focused on censorship. They're so worried about the way that platforms like Twitter are able to mute someone when they want to. And there's a lot of free speech stuff that we could talk about if we wanted to, not that we need to today, but there's going to be a lot of talk about that. Now, the the other thing I think that's interesting though, Barrett, is in thinking about how this is all evolving and how 
the creator, I think what we're trying to say here is we want the creators to realize that they're the ones that can be in the driver's seat and that can have the leverage. And I think a lot of times as someone just starting out, you think, who am I? Like Facebook's this massive company. I should just kind of do what they want me to do, right? And the problem is there are all these VC dollars out there swirling around creating companies. And those companies are trying to make it easy for creators. But at the same time, they're only doing that because there's a piece that they can take from you. And you have to be careful about the intentions of the businesses that are doing that and recognize the differences between companies that are helping you build your business versus companies that are maybe going to manipulate you in some way. And there's certainly a lot of manipulation that goes on on some of the big social networks. Okay, so let's get into that a little bit. I think this starts to get into audience growth. And the key principle I think people can practice as creators is use the companies, don't let them use you. And here's what I mean. You should be where the best audience growth opportunities are even if that's on rented property. And so that goes back to the whole like walled garden idea, right? So uh, an example of this right now is Clubhouse. Clubhouse is hot new social audio platform. It's basically like a live podcast with an audience who can hop up on stage and ask questions and all of this, but it's not recorded. And so there's a little bit of like that Twitter feel of you just kind of see what you get. It's live. You can interact with people you might not get to interact with. You can grow an audience faster there than anywhere else if you have a strategy for it right now. But it is the ultimate in walled gardens. It is Facebook in the early days, basically, where there's a ton of opportunity. You can build a massive following, but you better believe that they're going to start charging you to access those people eventually or some other version of that. And so should you not use Clubhouse? No. Just think about how you can use Clubhouse as a tool to own the relationship to your audience. So let's say like a good example right now that I'm seeing is a lot of people who are active on both Twitter and Clubhouse can see as much as 10x the audience size on Clubhouse because it's so early. There's so much traction and just the way that the network operates. Well, great. You have 100,000 followers on Clubhouse. That only matters if you can maintain a long-term relationship to those people and not rely on the Clubhouse notification system to have access. Okay. Well, let's say you host a weekly session on Clubhouse about fly fishing. Let's go back to our classic example. Fly fishing weekly, Thursday mornings on Clubhouse. And you have 10 or 100,000 followers on there. At the end of every session, you should be saying, go to barrettbrooks.com slash Clubhouse to sign up for my email list so I can stay in touch with my best content that's not on Clubhouse or whatever. And it's only gonna be a fraction of the people, but the number of people who take that action and want to hear from you more are going to be worth more dollars to you long-term than whatever the number is on Clubhouse or Twitter. And so that's what I mean by leverage the platforms. Use them for what they're giving you. Take the advantage while you have it, but then know that the second that they limit your access, you've got the freedom because you already have them on your SMS list or your email list, and you can go contact them somewhere else and say, I'm over here now. And that is a huge advantage that you can't get shut out of that. The only thing that can shut you out of that is if you mess up the relationship to your audience and that's on you. And that's control I think we all want. Now, I'm curious, Barrett, you kind of started out with, it sounded like a bone to pick over how we got here. Like, how did we get to this golden age of so many platforms and options and tools for creators? I mean, you mentioned a couple, like a lot of things have just sprung up in the past year or two, Clubhouse, Substack, OnlyFans, like there are all these places where people are growing audiences 
and in some cases, monetizing them very well. You know, if, if you're not familiar with paid newsletters, Substack is huge. ConvertKit just launched a paid newsletter offering. Twitter bought Review, which is another one. This is a hot space, and some people are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. In fact, some people are making close to that a month just by getting people to pay for a daily or weekly email from them. It's, it's amazing. So this is all new. Like all of this has come up recently in terms of tools and platforms. However, it's not as if paid newsletters are new. In fact, you can go back, you mentioned snail mail, maybe that's not a good way to reach people, but in the 80s and 90s, there were paid newsletters that went in the physical mail, even back before that. I mean, I think I just watched something about feminism and Phyllis Schlafly, this woman who was sending out paid a paid newsletter, basically, to people over mail. And people were making money that way. And people were, you know, selling things and, and whatnot. So none of this is new. It's just, but sometimes the VCs and Twitter and everyone will make you think it's new or make you think that they just came up with it. What are you worried about? Like in terms of creators, if someone hasn't been blogging and podcasting and doing the whole thing for a while, if they're just showing up now, like what do you worry about in terms of their mindset and the way that they're viewing the ecosystem that exists right now? Well, my biggest worry with that would be that they would spin their wheels, spread their efforts out across too many places and make no progress and think this isn't for me. And I strongly believe that the most sustainable economy in the modern world is probably half centered on digital product sales from creators like this. Like if I think a hundred years from now, how do we sustain population growth and just the realities of the modern world? Well, historically, okay, let me abstract this for a second. Elon Musk and other people will talk about this idea of first principles and coming back to timeless ideas that are truths about humanity. And I think it's really helpful to go all the way back to what is just true about people when we're thinking about these things so that you don't get lost in all of the hype that's out there today. And economies are, well, let me start with how the internet has like developed. Humans developed, first of all, visually, we developed the ability to see the world and process information that way first. Then we developed the ability for spoken language to communicate between us about the way that we see the world. And then we developed the ability to write down those things because as spoken word got harder and harder to communicate history with, we needed a way to translate that and pass it on. The internet went the opposite direction. It started with writing, right? So you go all the way back. All this started with web blogs and open protocols like RSS and things like that, email. And even before that, email is really old. People don't realize 40 something years old, I think. And Usenet and these other things that were just text. Yep. IARC, like all of these things were text-based communication. And then we, we started being able to do audio. Podcasts came, podcasts have been around for a long time. Like they're on this slow burn growth rate, but they came next and then came video, which corresponds to our visual processing. And what we've seen is as we got more towards our natural base level ability to process information, which is primarily visual, those mediums have grown much faster. So video has grown way faster than podcasting did. And podcasting has started growing faster than blogs do now because we're catering to our natural ways of processing information as the internet's able to process more information itself. And plus, also, let's be honest, like people have short attention spans. They also, a lot of times, have low education, not necessarily to their own fault, but it's easier to reach people through video because it's more entertaining, it's more engaging, and a lot of people don't want to read. 
So now that we're on videos and you've seen videos get shorter and shorter and shorter to now where TikTok's like the biggest video platform ever because they're like 15, 20 second long videos. Yep, exactly. So if I'm thinking about audience growth, I'm thinking in that first principle kind of way, like we are visual beings first. That is what we are built to be. Everything else about our communication supplements that basic thing. When we see another human face, there's like all of this shit that happens in the back of our brain that we don't we don't process it consciously, right? So if I'm a creator, I'm saying, all right, video is just, it's a native way for people to process information. It's probably a good way to build an audience. If I don't have the tools or the skills or the desire to do video, then I'm betting on audio because audio I think is the next best thing to video it. It hits us in a way that text just can't. And then I'm going to writing. I think that's one of the reasons it's so hard to break through in writing is number one, you've got to be a very effective writer at communicating information. And number two, you've got to be really interesting and cater to kind of a highly educated population of readers or audience members in order to really build a big list. James Clear is a perfect example of this. He's done all of those things. He makes it attractive. He makes it interesting. And he gets to the point and get packs a lot of value per word that he writes. But I would bet that his audience average education level is probably pretty high. I'd be very surprised if on average his audience didn't have a college degree. That's not the world. So that would be the bet that I'm making is on the first principle of how humans process information. I'm going video first. If I don't want to do video, I'm doing audio. And if I don't want to do that and I have a ton of confidence in my ability to communicate in the written word and break through the noise, I'm doing writing. I like this. I was just talking a couple of hours ago with Steve Chu from My Wife Quit Her Job for his podcast. And he was asking me what platform, what medium would you use to reach people if you were starting over? And I didn't consider that in terms of what you just laid out, the way that humans process information. My concerns, which I would layer on this, would be which one are you most capable of creating, right? And I think and I think you said that basically. Go down the list and figure out in that order of preference, which one are you capable of creating? But then in terms of the medium and which platform I would choose, once you've decided, am I doing video? Am I doing audio? Am I writing? The question is, where am I going to get discovered? Where am I going to, where's my work going to find a platform that will showcase it? And the problem with audio traditionally has been discoverability. If you think about when you go to find something on the internet and Google returns you results, they don't ever show you a podcast episode. They always show you either a video or written content, basically. And that's why podcasting has been so difficult for newbies to get started on if you don't have an audience already. But I'm curious if Clubhouse might be solving some of that discoverability of audio. Yes, I think it is. People will poo-poo Clubhouse and I think they have a lot of reasons to do that. What I'm interested in is how do we take like an anthropological approach of observing the platform to see its merits? You know, everyone has a reason not to do a new thing. There's no reason to do a new thing if what you're doing is working. Like don't do a new thing. But if you're trying to get started, you're trying to grow, you need to go where the people are. And I don't care what you say, Clubhouse is an effective way to build an audience right now. And so if I'm a creator, what I'm thinking is, if I'm already doing something, how can I make that apply to multiple platforms? I think that's one of the things James Clear has been fantastic at is applying the same medium of work to many different places. 
You can read his blog. You can get it via RSS. You can get it via email. You can get it in Instagram stories. So wherever you are, he'll bring his writing to you. I would do the same. If I'm like a podcaster and discoverability is a thing that I'm having trouble with, I would go record. Technically, recording is against Clubhouse's terms of use, but they're letting it happen right now. I would go record my podcast live for an audience on Clubhouse every week. And then at the end, I would say, subscribe to my podcast on your favorite podcasting platform, because that's a better relationship than relying on Clubhouse long term. But if the audience discoverability is there, go there and then work on translating that to an owned relationship later. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, us old timers, I think may have an innate sense for that maybe newer people don't. And that is that when a new platform opens up, there are tremendous opportunities there. And you see this happen over and over again throughout history where the early adopters of a platform, especially when there's a massive audience showing up, a lot of times they're able to carry that initial success over to other places. But that momentum, that rush that happens, there are tons of people looking and not a lot of people providing in the early days. So there's, you know, the old school celebrities of YouTube. We saw this with Vine. You're seeing this with TikTok. So Clubhouse is another one of these examples. And the thing is, for a while, there weren't new social media, right? We had this sort of early rush of Facebook, of Twitter, of YouTube, all that kind of stuff. Then it it seems like it dried up for a little bit after Instagram. And now we're getting this rush again of TikTok, Clubhouse, all this new stuff. So if you're looking to build an audience, you know, yes, you need to look after yourself and make sure that you're creating direct connections to your audience for long-term sustainability, but don't be a curmudgeon about it. You got to find the people first. And so that's where you're saying, take advantage of a platform when it's there. That's exactly right. And we've always had this debate at Fizzle, right? Is it, should you go audience first or product first? And you can go either way. But if you don't know what you're going to sell, an audience gives you leverage for a lot of different ways to make money. It's the same reason uh, investors invest in companies with big audiences. You can find a lot of ways to make money if you have an audience that cares about you. But if you don't have an audience, you don't have anyone to pay you. So like I'm thinking about this for myself even right now. I don't do a ton of work outside of ConvertKit because I just don't have time, but I have time to host a weekly chat on Clubhouse, I bet. And that might not be a bad bet for me right now because topics that I have a lot of expertise on like remote work or running teams or scaling a company, like those are things people want to hear about there. And I could spend an hour talking about it and I could end up with 50,000 followers that I can't get on other platforms right now. And so as the creator Again, come back to the principle. What is true about humans and what they want? How can I use these platforms rather than them using me? And then what am I best at of these different media that I can take advantage of? And that way you're not getting lost in all the hype and all of that. You're thinking about my priorities. How does what I want to do intersect with what people want? And that gives you this great marriage there. And the big arc of all of this to come back, like before I got into the whole first principles thing, that I want people to understand is the entire economy of the world, the capitalism as a system is built on two key assumptions. One is never ending growth of GDP of countries. And two is that populations will grow so that GDP grows. Here's the thing. We are reaching a point where that is not going to be possible anymore. We can say that we can figure out ways for population to continue growing and we'll probably be pretty innovative, but at some point it's just not feasible. And that system breaks when that's true. Yeah. And you can look at, I'm going to forget the agency. Actually, it might be the CIA, but they estimate population growth for the planet. 
And you can see what's going to happen based on what's happened to advanced societies already. And that is that it, it looks like an S curve, you know, it's exponential. And then it will have to because it's going to reach an upper limit. And they don't know if that's going to be 10 billion people on the planet or 15. But it certainly is probably not over 20. And this will all happen in the next 50 years. So here's my like driving thesis behind why the creator economy is the obvious path forward for humanity. We are reaching the edge of our natural resource use. Like it's just true. We can't make as much physical product as we have been per person in developed countries across the world. It's just not going to work. So where do you turn when that happens? And where you turn is online. You turn to digital goods where the limitation is computer processing power, basically, which is way more efficient in terms of resources than creating more physical products. And we have this inherent desire, whether right or wrong, to be consumers of stuff. Like it's been molded into us by all of the forces economically. Online, you can go ham. You can spend every dollar you want online, and we can do that mostly sustainably over a long period of time. And I used to get kind of freaked out by that because it feels like a house of cards not built on anything. But if people have their basic needs of physical goods and food and all of that taken care of, it just makes sense to make up the remainder of the economy with digital goods. Because if it gives you enjoyment, it gives you a way to have shared experiences and spend time with people and, and use your money in ways that bring you joy, it's better for everything. The economy, the world, climate change, all of it. That's why I believe fundamentally... It's better to be a creator now than it ever has been before, and it's only going to grow. Like the next 50 or 100 years are going to be a return of the new local economy is going to be online local economies. We went through the cycle of we were farmers, then we were craftspeople where like when you weren't farming, you made enough stuff to trade with people around you for the things you didn't farm. Then craftspeople learned they could hire other people to make more stuff. And that was when money came into play because you could trade money for food. And so they started making more stuff. And that's when markets came around. That turned into businesses. Businesses turned into corporations. And corporations fuck over individual people. At the end of the day, like, it's not how it should be. People who run companies thoughtfully, like, there are some companies who do it right. But big companies get their incentives all screwed up. And it's usually at the expense of individual workers. And people started seeing that. And they were like, I didn't sign up for this. And when there's another option, people will not keep showing up to work in that kind of situation. And so there's also that force where I think there's a return to this creative outlet mentality of if I can earn a living working for myself, making work that's fulfilling, and that is more sustainable for the whole world in terms of economics and natural resources, I just think it's inevitable. Like it's a better system to work within. You're going to need your corporations building jet planes, but not much else beyond that. Right. And it's not as if there isn't a model for a lot of what you're talking about. It's at the end of the day, it's just entertainment, it's knowledge, it's human connection. And all of those things have been happening in the physical world. But I think we've we've proven over the past year during this pandemic that there are a lot of things that can be translated now to online. I mean, think about how many people probably discovered FaceTime and Zoom for the first time over the past year, right? And and those technologies were there, but thank God that they were ready for the entire world to be spending hours a day on them when all this went down. Right. That's exactly it. I think some of the most interesting creators over the next 50 years, let's call it, will be the ones who learn to bridge the physical and digital world in really special ways. It'll be the people who create 
souvenir style experiences, like premium style experiences in the real world, but they give access to everyone that wants to experience it online at a lower cost. I think we're going to see this with music as an example. The best musicians will do their streaming thing, but they don't make money that way. That's that's their owned walled garden thing. They will translate that audience to an owned relationship through email and SMS and other things like that. And they will sell digital goods, yes, but they'll create incredible real life experiences for the diehard fans as well. And that'll create this really virtuous way to earn a very interesting living and a very fulfilling living, I think. So that's why I think it's the golden age of creators, basically. It's interesting, right? Because for the past decade, there were so many conversations about the music industry dying and how difficult it was for musicians. And now I think things are finally changing and they're actually getting better for musicians if they're smart about playing this whole online experience that all of us have been working on for so long. The musicians now that understand how that works, they understand how to be on Twitch and other places showing up, giving intimate live performances. I think that they're finding more opportunities actually. And they probably have to think of themselves maybe as a little bit more than just a musician. They don't just play music. They, you know, have to be an entertainer in some ways and they have to communicate with people in other forms. But wow, there are some serious opportunities now. There really are. And I think that's just going to apply to more and more and more segments of creators. Like an example of that is we're already starting to see that with restaurateurs and chefs and mixologists, bartender type people. They have found a way to start building audiences online during all of this because it's another outlet to supplement their restaurant income or to replace it if necessary. Athletes, athletes are getting smarter about my career is this long as a, you know, using my physical body at professional athleticism. And it's this long afterwards. And they're starting to get wiser about building audiences and leveraging their likeness to their own benefit long term. So it just seems like this is a natural progression and correction for this explosion of capitalism that was kind of unfettered and we didn't have a good view on the impact it was going to have long term. I think this is a correction back to, okay, here's what actually sustains us and what we actually need as a species long term. And I know that sounds like all grandiose and stuff, but I just think if you understand the macro forces at play, you can play the game way better as an individual creator. And I think it gives you a lot more confidence to take a bet on yourself. You know, even if it's just starting a side project, like what do you have to lose? If this is where we're headed, you should get to benefit from it. You know, I became an entrepreneur mostly because I was so turned off by the corporate environment and seeing inside of that and just how soul sucking it was and how used everyone was inside of those companies and how a few people at the very top really benefit and you know big shareholders and so on i would love to see nothing more than the demise of major corporations and the empowerment of workers and maybe this will be a new form of not of socialism but of better distribution of income and equity for people. So I look forward to it. Now, this has been amazing. I could talk about this all day. But in closing, Barrett, what are your predictions like for the next several years? I think we're going to have some maybe distortions in the trends because of what's going to happen after the world opens back up post pandemic. And then what do you see as like the longer term trends as well? I mean, it's already started. There are hundreds of companies coming online every six or 12 months that are trying to serve the creator economy because of how much money is going into it right now. So we're going to see this explosion of companies continue. The end of the pandemic will fuel some of the demise of some of those companies. So that will be one thing that happens. Another thing is that you'll see consolidation. Inevitably, when you see an industry blow up, 
people have to combine forces because there's not enough room for everyone to keep existing. So some companies will get acquired, others will merge, others will die. And you'll end up, I don't know, let's call it three to five years from now with a more settled playing field for the creator economy. And there'll be new entrants, of course, just like anything, but it'll be a little more stable. And riding that wave as a creator makes it that much more important to own the relationship to your audience because you need to be flexible to the movements of these companies because they're going to rise and fall really fast, all things considered. That's true. And the rug can be pulled out from under you. If you work really hard building your profile on something like Clubhouse and it goes away overnight, which that one probably want, but won't. But we've seen others, you know, Periscope and Vine and all of these others that people put a lot of time into. So it's a good point. Yep, exactly. And then, so if we go to like the end of the pandemic, how is that going to change things? Some habits will have formed for sure online. People will use Zoom more often. They will use FaceTime more often. They will use tools like Clubhouse and TikTok and all these other things that they've spent time on because there will be habits there. But some of those habits will start to break in the rush for people to have human connection again, in-person human connection. I don't care what anyone says. We are built to be in community with one another in real life, no matter how good online relationships are. I think that's really going to put a damper on audience growth for a little while because people are going to rush back to in-person events and restaurants and trips and time with family and friends and all of that. I think as soon as people start getting vaccinated themselves, they will change their personal habits about how much they interact with other people. And so it won't be an all at once thing, but it'll be this growing crescendo as more and more people are vaccinated as they change personal habits. And I think that's really going to slow down the online economy for a bit. But that's just going to be kind of like when you have a market run in stocks, you'll get this massive growth. And then all economists will say there are necessary corrections. It's not bad. Some people will suffer from it, but it's not bad, all things considered. It's actually more sustainable. That's what's going to happen. You'll have a correction in the online market, and then it'll keep growing again from there. And that point will be about when you see more consolidation of the companies. And figuring out which players and which platforms you want to be on from there will probably be a safer bet than it is right now. Like, I guess if I were aiming for a goal, if I were just getting started today, I would say over the next 24 months, I would want to try and grow an email list or an SMS list or some some owned relationship platform connection to my audience of five to 10,000 people. And I know that sounds like a lot, but over two years, you should be able to do that with focused effort. And that asset, I think, could build a 30-year career from there in this industry. It's really the core, that core connection. You know, you can call it your thousand true fans or whatever, but if you can get to that point, then you have the leverage and you have the assurance that you will be able to carve out a place for yourself for at least years, if not decades to come. I know that I've relied on my email list for a very long time. I'm so glad that I have it. And anytime I want to start a conversation with hundreds of strangers, just send an email and get a bunch of replies back. And it's a great way to start those conversations. Barrett, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for keeping our finger on the pulse of what's going on with the creator economy. Like I said, I know that I've seen you writing about this. I've been writing about this. I think there's a lot more to come. And I think you're right. Let's assert some of our experience here and talk about this more so that people don't think that it just happened overnight. It's not an overnight success story that is as old as the internet in the making, but especially as old as blogging and YouTube, which is now just about 16 years old, I guess. Thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Corb. As always, you guys can find the show notes to this episode over at fizzle.co slash show. Thanks for our guest, Barrett Brooks. You can find him on Twitter. 
He is Barrett A. Brooks, I believe. Is that right, Twitter? Yep. Barrett A. Brooks. Uh, you can also find convertkit.com. And if you're looking to grow an email list, ConvertKit is a fantastic tool to do that. In fact, they have sponsored The Fizzle Show in months past, and we are big fans of ConvertKit. So as always, I'm your host, Corbett Barr. And until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show. 